listening to In Situ Science. My name is James O'Hanlon, and this episode is as much about banana bread as it is biology. I go and visit the home of Dr. Kate Umbers to chat science, and, well, you'll see what happens. I'm joined by a lecturer in zoology at the University of Western Sydney, an expert on animal coloration, a semi-professional big wave surfer, and a good friend of mine. She is none other than Dr. Kate Umbers. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, James. <laughs> Thanks for coming to my house. <laughs> it's great. We're standing in your kitchen. What are you making right now? I'm making a 12 banana banana bread, which is unprecedented <laughs> <laughs> and highly experimental like all of my baking. Good. Yeah, I'm partway through. I'm adding all the cinnamon I have. Because <laughs> I think it's what the recipe says. What inspired you to make 12 banana, banana breads? <laughs> 17 bananas in the freezer <laughs> that needed eating. And I thought, you can't use all 17. <laughs> and no plans for the other five? No, not yet. <laughs> I really should think about it. Okay. Kate. Yes. Tell me about the color blue. Oh God, it's been haunting me. <laughs> the color blue. So I was working on these grasshoppers during my PhD that happened to tur- turquoise and turquoise colors have followed me through my life. So my great and uh, my aunt, um, Annie Chris tells me that turquoise is my color and she's a synesthesiate. So a person that sees, experiences colors with, oh. with letters and numbers. And she always told me that my color was turquoise. And just so happened that I ended up working on a turquoise grasshopper for my PhD, or at least a grasshopper that turns turquoise when it changes temperature. And only the males, but I'm sure we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, and so I was working on this grasshopper and thinking about why, why, does it, why is anything blue? Why is anything turquoisey, blue, aqua, you know, that sort of shade? Um, this is a non-stick pan. I'm putting butter in a non-stick pan. It's not the way to do this. <laughs> Can't hurt though, right? <laughs> um, and so I, and so I started thinking about, well, why are other things blue? How do things make blue? Can everything see blue? And so from that, I wrote this, um, Mariella Herberstein and I came up with the idea to write a review on blue things and we dubbed it the blue review. And I think mostly we liked um, writing it and thinking about it because of the rhyming more than <laughs> in the title more than anything else. And Mariella enjoyed asking me how the Blue Review's going. Um, but it became a really fun project. And um, since that paper, people tend to say to me, oh, you're the person that likes blue. <laughs> well, Kate really is fascinated by blue things. Um, and it wouldn't be far from the truth because I do like lots of blue things but I think the biggest problem I have with blue things in nature in particular is people saying oh blue things are really rare I think actually that's probably rubbish but I don't I don't know if anyone can collect the data to see that what I found out during writing that review was that there's a lot of blue stuff out there and we we don't know quite how it's made or how things see it or what it's for often but there's a lot of blue stuff essentially blue in the animal kingdom doesn't have a specific purpose or salience or anything. You can be blue for any number of reasons. Yeah. Yeah, people, I, I guess people are really excited about blue. And I remember when I was writing that review, um, I came across some interesting sort of sociology and psychology papers about how blue is the favorite color of lots of people and things like that. 
you know, everybody likes the blue butterfly better than the orange one or the yellow one. Um, why is that? We don't really know. So there could be some interesting biases in human perception or human preference um, that kind of make us think the blue is special somehow, but in reality it's probably just the same as all the rest of the colors. It has similar, um, uh, similar limitations chemically, physically, you know, etc. So for a person that isn't, you know, a behavioral ecologist like yourself, color seems like a pretty straightforward thing. You just look at an animal and you go, ah, it's, it's green. And why is it important to actually study animal colors? I suppose the first thing that jumps to mind when I hear a question like that is, is in the mid-90s, <clears throat> we started figuring out that most animals don't see colors the way humans do. And so it's not actually useful to think about or to, to look at animals and decide things about how they're using them or uh, what they might be for, how they produce them and especially how they see them. So by studying colors from a more objective point of view, I can get this butter off my hand. <laughs> um, we can then look at the physical properties of those colors and we can um, model them into the visual systems of of other animals other than humans to get an idea of what's really what they're really being used for in wild. Okay. So it's pretty fair to say your sort of career in color started with these turquoise grasshoppers. Yeah, absolutely. What are they? Where are they? What do they do? I remember very, very clearly the day that I realized that this was going to be what I worked on. <laughs> um, I'd, so I'd said to Mariela Herberstein, my PhD advisor and knower of all things, wonderful mentor that um, I'd like to work in the snowy mountains I'd like to work on a PhD with her and I don't really care what else and she said being the wise wonderful field biologist that she is well field biologist with chalets um, <laughs> she said tea and cakes and whatnot tea cakes fine wine cellars you know, <laughs> the usual field scenario yeah um, she said go have a look and see what you find so, with the help of yourself, Dr. James O'Hanlon. That's me. Back in 2007. <laughs> and the wonderful, truly wonderful Dr. Corinne Harvey. <laughs> uh, we went on a wonderful journey into the unknown, into the wilds of the Australian Alpine region to go and see what I might work on. And we came across all kinds of things, but we just kept finding a lot of grasshoppers. One of them was... You know, when we came across them, one of them was turquoise, and I thought, that's super weird. Came back from the field trip and was chatting with Mariella about all the things that we found. And and I remember Mariella saying, I think this grasshopper is probably pretty interesting. Because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I just, just wanted to go to the Alps, right? I just finished my undergraduate. I'm, you know, in my early, mid-20s. <laughs> don't really know anything. Um, sure. And she said, yeah, I reckon this grasshopper's a thing. And I was like, all right, cool, awesome, I'm going to do it. I remember walking back from her office to my office in the blue room mm -hmm. on the bottom level of EHC at Macquarie University and thinking, wow, this is cool. I'm going to study coloration in animals for my PhD. Huh. I'm really excited about it. And this grasshopper is really exciting. So okay. as the... So, oh, this is amazing, this batter. Do you want some? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so. In case you've forgotten, we're making banana bread. As we 12 this. banana banana bread. 
I'm going to put some brown sugar on the top of it. All right, great. Yeah, pretty good, huh? Oh. Um, so, hang on, sorry, I made a mess. Oh, <laughs> sugar lanch. <laughs> sugar lanch. <laughs> And so the species is Cosmoscola tristis. They're known as the chameleon grasshopper or the thermocolored grasshopper or the Australian alpine grasshopper, which is kind of a useless name. Um, I've called them the chameleon grasshopper throughout my PhD. Um, and essentially what happens is in the males, when their body temperature is at around 10 degrees or less, they are black or mm-hmm. very, very, very dark green. When their body temperature um, exceeds 25 degrees Celsius, they are turquoise, like the color of Smurf, or something like that, I guess. Yeah. Um, and at intermediate temperatures between 10 degrees and 25 degrees, they're intermediate colors. Okay, so this is reminding me of like the little Hot Wheels I had as a kid that you put in the freezer and go from dark green to light green and that sort of stuff. Totally. I tried to get funding from Bonds on hypercolor t-shirts, but <laughs> they, they, were, they were not interested. <laughs> You can drop, do some more brand name name drops on the podcast and see what funny you get. These Maxwell and Williams mugs that I've got here on my seat. <laughs> delightful. What colors are they? Can't oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the your findings? Why do they change color? Well, the, the long, the short answer is we don't really know yet. <laughs> we never know. Good science right there. <laughs> But the idea is you've got something, this color change, it happens in the males, it doesn't happen in the females, straight away you think, oh, it must be sexually selected. It must be under some kind of sexual selection. Either females prefer males that are turned very bright turquoise, and maybe that tells the females something about the male's ability to find nice warm microclimates in a very cold alpine, well, relatively very cold Australian alpine <laughs> region. Um, or maybe males use it to compete with each other. So we did some experiments asking females, hey, look, here's a, a, a very cold male who looks black. Here's a male that we heated up. Which one would you prefer to approach and or mate with or whatever you want to do with them? Yep. Hang out with. And the females don't care. Uh, mostly they didn't approach the males at all. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone actually make a choice between one or the other. So it's not sexually selected. Well, it seems like at least there's no female preference for turquoise males. So then we thought, well, maybe since the males all become different levels of turquoise um, when they heat up to 25 degrees, maybe it's a signal to other males about how great they are at becoming warm. So we didn't know about a context for why males would be using this to assess each other until one day we were up in the Alps with Dr. Nikolai Titanic and Dr. John Martin and Dr. Corinne Harvey. And Name dropping. <laughs> the, three, the four of us were hiking and Nick and James came across, Nick and James, Nick and John came across grasshoppers fighting, these the males fighting over this female while she was laying eggs. And Nick and John came down from the mountain and told us, like, oh, God, it was so cool. We found these they're fighting. Because grasshoppers are not known to fight at all. Crickets and katydids have different kinds of male-male interactions where they compete with each other, and that's well known, but grasshoppers are primarily, or until this study, were completely unknown to actually engage in quite fierce fighting. You find the first case of fighting grasshoppers ever. Yep. And they also change color. And they also change color. 
So they're pretty remarkable little beasts just hanging out there, up just above Threadbow. So we thought, well, maybe in these fights, males are using their colours to assess each other. And maybe the brightest males can win fights somehow. So we ran a whole lot of experiments where we had males of different brightnesses in a, an arena with a female, and we saw which males managed to fight off the other males and mate with the female. And in the end, didn't come up with a lot, <laughs> but what we did find the males in the fights were more closely matched in their color than a male in the fight and a male just walking by. So it seemed like the two males in the fight were more likely, were more closely, more, more closely matched, and that tends to indicate that if they can't assess each other based on something like color, um, in order to stop the, a fight from beginning, then they may enter a fight thinking that they both have a good chance of winning. Something kind of anthropomorphize this if I'm, um, you know. Wandering around, feeling competitive. I mean, seeing lots of guys that are much bigger than me. I'm gonna go. I'm not gonna fight you, because I know I probably couldn't beat them. If I see guys that are much smaller than me, I'm gonna go. I'm not gonna bother. But if those guys are about well, the they, same size as me, maybe I could challenge them to a fight. So they're finding other grasshoppers that are the same brightness, and are more likely to fight those grasshoppers than yeah other ones. So the the guys smaller than you wouldn't bother entering the fight with you. Yeah. But the ones where they're closely matched, you think, oh, I can't decide beforehand if I'm going to win or lose. So yeah. it escalates into a fight. So this was the idea, except that it was based on a color rather than the size of the male. Yeah. And we have some evidence for it. But in the end, I basically just ran out of time in my PhD. Um, and that tends to be what happens with brand new systems like this. If you start off working on a species no one's really worked on before, except for a couple of really important papers... Three and a half years is nowhere near long enough to get all the answers. <laughs> so I passed on the baton to the PhD student that I'm now advising. This is a perfect example for me of how science works because people kind of see science as, you know, you have a question and you go out and you test it and you find an answer and you go, hooray, problem solved. But more often than not, you just go out, do these experiments and you walk away with more questions than you started with. That's certainly the case for this species. <laughs> the other thing we looked at was considering that the temperature... The color change was being driven by temperature. The most kind of intuitive or tempting hypothesis was that maybe it helps them thermoregulate. So maybe if they turn turquoise when they're 25 degrees, it helps them avoid overheating. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they turn black overnight so that in the morning they can heat up really fast. So this is something you hear thrown around a lot. If you wear black clothes, you're going to be warmer. Or if you wear light clothes, they're going to help, you know, deflect the sun's rays or something. Sort of right. that, but with body colors, right? Right. And so, you know, everyone's pretty excited about that idea because it's a fairly simple concept. And it works great at, like, human scale. Mm -hmm. But at tiny grasshopper scale and insect scale, generally, it can be much trickier because... You have lots of important competing factors like wind speed and surface area and uh, microhabitats, little tiny patches of sun behind rocks out of the wind. We wrote a, a paper about um, whether or not the turquoise phase of these grasshoppers could um, make a difference to their body temperature um, compared to the black. The result from that, from that study was that the, the likely body temperature difference 
that we could um, theoretically model would be about half a degree Celsius between the two color morphs. And that's cool. Uh, that was exciting. But like most other studies on this question, we didn't go any further. And the really important question is whether or not that makes a difference. Hmm. And at this point, there's been no studies to my knowledge that show us whether or not that actually will or won't make a difference in the life of a grasshopper in terms of how many babies they have, which is the most important thing. Um, their evolutionary fitness. So there's any students out there that want to do a massive, ridiculous experiment, <laughs> look you up and I would be very carry excited. the torch. I would be very excited because it's the most important next question in that field. Yeah. And so that was early on in your research career. Like you said, you did it for your PhD. You've moved on to bigger and better things since then. What sort of projects have you got under your belt at the moment? What are you doing? <laughs> Other than making banana bread. <laughs> Not a lot. <laughs> banana bread is taking up a significant proportion of my time. <laughs> um, or freezing bananas. Seems like I've been doing a lot of that lately. <laughs> yeah, no, it's going really great. So um, at the moment, I'm working on some things, finalizing some things from um, my postdocs, but also... Um, continuing with some of the things from my postdocs. So one of the really exciting systems that I'm working on at the moment is on the red crown toadlet that lives right around Sydney, mm-hmm. Sudophrony australis. Um, and I'm really interested in how their colours might protect them from predators, um, both Sudophrony australis and all the rest of the Sudophrony as well. So the wonderful Crawberry frogs and all of their friends. Because they're highly toxic and a lot of them are brightly coloured, but not all of them are brightly coloured. Um, so this is another potential function of animal colour. So we spoke about things like sexual selection and thermoregulation. That this is something else. Yeah, so this is called aposematism or aposematism, depending on where you're from in the world. <laughs> um, or aposematism. Um, but it's genuinely known as warning coloration. So these frogs have some sort of bright colours and we think it's because they're toxic and they're advertising that through these colours. Yeah. And that it's helping them avoid being attacked. In our collaboration, James and I, uh, Dr. James O'Hara, the host of this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we made around two thousand frog models. And when I say we, I mean James made <laughs> around two thousand frog models when he was um, helping out on this project several months ago. <laughs> How did you feel about that, James? That was great. <laughs> Go on. And, um, <laughs> yeah, we had um, their black and white bellies that are characteristic of Sidophony frogs and some uh, cryptic-bellied frogs, and we had some red-crowned um, red and some plain... Probably should explain why we make plasticine frogs there, right? <clears throat> yeah, right. So we had all these plasticine frogs, and the idea was we wanted to put them out in national parks across Sydney, so Royal National Park. Well, did I get permits for this? Yeah, I'm sure I did. <laughs> <laughs> you can edit this out. It's fine. <laughs> Royal National Park. We put them out. 600 in each national park and we wanted to see in the plasticine if the frogs got attacked and if so from the indentations in the plasticine what attacked them so you can tell if it's a bird beak or some incisors from the mammals so you put plastic plasticine frogs out in the field if they get eaten they leave little marks and so you can test whether Things that have these bright colors are more likely to get bitten than things that don't right whether these colors protect them Right, so we expected that the brightly coloured models would be less likely to be attacked than the ones that were plain brown. Yeah. But actually we found that they were all equally likely to be attacked. Um, that's hot off the press, James. Haven't so, even published that yet. 
like all good science, we just end up with more questions. Yeah. We do answers at the end of it. Yeah. So that's the very, very first study on morning coloration on pseudophrony, maybe at all, I think. Um, so it's the very first step into yet another new system that I decided would be a good idea to start <laughs> working on that no one's worked on before. So this is, you're sort of hinting at one of the things that I really like about science and being a scientist is that you can do things that nobody else on the planet's ever done or even thought about doing. And they're little tiny things like asking whether red colors protect frogs. It doesn't seem like a huge big deal, but just sort of knowing that you're the first person to ever yeah. think of that or do that sort of fills me with a real sort of satisfaction. And well, it's a pretty awesome feeling. Yeah, you're looking at you're looking at you know, usually you're looking at some kind of graph or some big jumble of numbers on your screen, mm-hmm. and because you had forty five thousand years of training on <laughs> very low pay, <laughs> you understand what that jumble of mean of numbers means. Yeah. And then you look at the numbers and you know what they mean and you and you know something about the natural world for the first time ever. And you can tell other people about it. It's pretty great. So I remember having these sort of moments when I went out to the field looking at orchid mantises with a team consisting of Dr. Greg Hallwell and Dr. <laughs> Fernando Sole and Dr. Kate Umbers, <laughs> I think. <laughs> and we sat and we watched orchid mantises and we watched them pluck bees out of midair and you just sort of have that sudden thought that maybe no one else on the planet's ever witnessed this because nobody else has ever thought to look and that's sort of the wonderful simplicity of all of it is that it's just you just have to go and look so what is it about natural history that is so important to you i don't know i really like it (laughs) (laughs) you know like there's nothing more exciting than seeing an incredible animal in the field or um, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing more exciting than sitting on your couch and watching David Attenborough show you stuff from all around the world. You know, <laughs> it's just a deep sense of wonder that these things could all, you know, in 4.5 billion years, we've come to this point, and all of these amazing things have evolved by chance. We've got crazy colored frogs and venomous snakes and sea pigs and God knows what else. <laughs> God knows what else. God has no idea. <laughs> and sea pigs and, I don't know, vegetarian spiders and just great stuff. And I just think, are you alive if you're not excited about that? Because you're part of it. You're part of life as well. I don't know. Understanding how the natural world works is important for humans because we depend on it and we're part of it. And being uninterested in how life works and how life evolved essentially means you're uninterested in the history of yourself i mean geology is good too i guess (laughs) 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 but life is where it's at life is where everything exciting is happening (laughs) yeah people would say the same thing about you know astrophysics and all that sort of stuff yeah it's pretty cool i think the important thing is that you you actually care about the universe that you're in Hmm. Is that a rare quality in a person? It's interesting because on the surface of a lot of people, you may not find it. Hmm. But then, like you're only there kind of like, oh, check this out. And they're like, oh, why are you holding a bird poo? No, 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 it's a spider. It's pretending to be a bird poo so birds don't eat it. They're like, wow, 
That's amazing. <laughs> I don't think it takes very much to scratch under the surface of everyone to yeah. find people that are excited about that. And that's really the simplicity. And particularly in this country, go out into your backyard and have a look and you'll find things. Chances are you could be the first person to ever see them. So you do lots of teaching and outreach and stuff in, in your job and science communication. Is is that why? Is that a driving factor behind reaching out, just scratching that surface for them? Yeah, totally. Without a doubt. I need to know. People need to know. <laughs> <laughs> I People just... need to know there's spiders that look like bird poo. Yeah, they need to know that. Because their lives are meaningless without it. <laughs> and they don't even realize. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's very hard to express it. But for me, there's a fundamental connection between me and something else that's alive. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody has it. I don't know, maybe like Rupert Murdoch doesn't have it. (laughs) 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 The first person that comes to mind is Rupert Murdoch. I was thinking of jerks. People that yeah. seem to be driven purely by you could have name dropped another scientist then, but <laughs> Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> but we can move on. Since you're such a color guru, I decided to put together a little pop quiz for you. <laughs> Shame! <laughs> you're also a color guru, so that doesn't. No, bad. I'm the host of the podcast. I'm going to play the straight guy. And Dr. James O'Hanlon. Pretend like I don't know already know the answers to your questions. <laughs> but okay, but I'm going to eat. Banana, 12 banana, banana bread. All right. While we're doing this. How this quiz goes is I'm going to read a strange color name from the Pantone color charts. <laughs> I want to see if you can tell me what type of color it is. <laughs> okay. So, for so example, ready. I might say dusk. Pink. Mm, any more detail Mushroomy on that? Mushroomy pink. Brownie uh, mushroomy pink. It's uh, sort of lilac-y... Mm. Purpley sort of color. Too far off. <laughs> a little less red. Yeah, that's that is dusk. Okay. How about muskmelon? <laughs> what is that? All Pantone colors. Okay, muskmelon is gonna be like a dirty yellow. Yeah, <laughs> it's like what? Wow, like that a, was pretty good. A bit more tangerine. A bit of peach. Uh, yeah, a bit more red in that one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I thought this was a bit of a stroke of genius to do a little visual game on a podcast. <laughs> it's brilliant. It all translates I think it'll catch on. Mm-hmm. What about wood thrush? <laughs> that sounds bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with brownie maroon. It's definitely towards the brown end of the spectrum. It, uh, it's it's sort of like a like a spinach mm. poo like like a top. There's some mm. hints of forest green in there. Mm. Undertones of something. <laughs> it's a wood thrush. You can Google these at home if you like. <laughs> <laughs> what about hot sauce? Ooh, hot sauce. Okay, so obviously people are gonna be thinking, hey, red, red, it's red. But I'm thinking that you're tricking me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go for like more, like a really, like the color of Wednesday, which is like. Ooh, double down on this one. (laughs) The color of Wednesday is (laughs) is like a really orangey red. According to who? Oh, me. Oh, I experience (laughs) colors with days of the week. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on. 
expand on that. We're going well, <laughs> to get know. back to this quiz in a second. <laughs> I don't know what it means exactly, but yeah. for me, colours, days of the week have always kind of had colours. Um, so today's was, Tuesday. So Tuesday's like just a kind of a... Really, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday and Sunday really recede in their pastily. Um, <laughs> Tuesday's kind of beige. But Mondays are bright red and Wednesdays are like a reddy orangey colour and Fridays are like royal blue. Oh. Saturday's kind of pale green and Sunday's a pale pink. They don't go well together at all, which is it's, really annoying. It's not a spectrum or anything, it's just... Oh no. Okay. I don't know where it comes from and I don't... I don't know if it's always the same. But Tuesday's a bit yellow for me. Mm, yeah, it could be. For me, it's a yellow. beigey sort of colour. A bit like wood thrush. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Does it affect your wardrobe choices at all? No. Although oh. I do sometimes wear my blue chucks on Fridays, just because I think it's funny. <laughs> and I don't have chucks in exactly the right blue, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do we say hot sauce was? Orangey red like Wednesday. <laughs> uh, it's, it's definitely red. Oh, uh, it's more like mushroomy. Yeah. No, that's not what I was thinking. <laughs> it's it's Much a more vibrant. red. All right. Crown jewel. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking kind of like somewhere between purple and scarlet. You're good at this game. You're sort of getting there. Really? At least you're getting, you know, the, the man color theme right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's oh, purple. Like, yeah, like, like aplesia purple. <laughs> like sea slug Expand. <laughs> What's well, you know, a can't? So they find these wonderful sea slugs that you can find like on Long Reef Rock Platform or wherever around Sydney. If you agitate them enough, which of course is not okay, um, like they squirt. Poke them. Yeah, poke them, poke them, poke them, poke them. They squirt purple dye, essentially. It would end up being able to dye stuff. And so when they discovered this, I think in the Mediterranean, it was the first... The first or among, you know, the only natural instances of purple. Oh. And so they were able to dye their robes and things <laughs> and be wonderfully grand in their sea slug colored. It is quite a pretty purple. I've stood on a couple of sea slugs yeah, in my time. Yeah, they're easy to step on accidentally because they're so cryptic. And, yeah. they, and then they have this squirting purple stuff. <laughs> which is maybe something I should study. It sounds awesome. Last one. Pale dogwood. <laughs> does sound very brown doesn't it <laughs> um, pale brown perhaps pale doggish brown <laughs> uh, with spots yeah I mean okay I think it's pale brown from the name but then maybe it's blue it's it's beige again pale brown beige like a skin colored beige brown yeah <laughs> I don't really understand the whole Pantone thing yeah um but it's like an international standard for colours, right? And so you yep. have like your six... Is it a six-digit code or something yeah, like that? So that the code for Pale Dogwood is 13-1404. Um, so like if you're a graphic designer and you want something made in just the right colour, you give that code. Mm. And say this is the Pantone colour code. So I always wanted to make Chameleon Grasshopper Turquoise as Pantone colour. I don't know how to do it. I want to submit it somehow. Call it Koshiskola Turquoise. We'll call it Chameleon Grasshopper. Grasshopper. It's, it's a great color name. It's a great color name. I mean, like if you did that one for a test for me, I'd be like, mm, green. Be like, no, turquoise. I'm wrong. I don't know. Maybe it'll be color of the year. One year. Wow, that would be amazing. You think I get any research funding? No. You didn't ask him. Them? No. 
<laughs> Maybe I should. How's the banana bread going? Oh, that's a very good question. Well, the banana bread's looking pretty damn fantastic, actually. Mm. I'm making three banana breads at once. <laughs> They're destined for failure. Right, well, maybe we should finish up then. Okay. Right, if you would like to know more about Kit and her research, <laughs> you can jump online and go to kitumbers.com and learn about the Umbers Lab. How did you come up with that lab name? Professor Scott Keir. <laughs> That's to blame. Yeah, I wanted to call it something cool and interesting like the Color Ecology Lab. He said, Professor Umbers. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous, just call it the Umbers Lab. Follow Kate on Twitter at quasi coherent. I won't ask what that means, I'll just go on. It's a physics thing, James. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Kate, for the coming on the podcast. Thanks for coming over and helping me with banana bread, James. It's, it's been be great having you, and we'll see you all next time on the podcast. I'll put the kettle on. You've been listening to In Situ Science. Check out our website at insituscience.com or follow us on Twitter with the handle at InSituScience. Thank you for joining us on the podcast and we'll see you next time.